0: This is a Handshake Agency podcast.
1: Welcome back to Rewind Spotlight on the 1986 second album Born Sandy devotional by much-loved Aussie rockers, the Triffids. I'm your host, Steve Bell. You're currently listening to the start of episode four of five, And we recommend, as always, that you start at the beginning if you haven't already checked out the first few episodes.
2: With a band like us, it's sort of hard to write the set list at the start of the day because we have had so many hits in this country. It's difficult to know which hit to play, where to start, but this one's been played on Countdown. So I guess that uh, means something. It's called Wide Open Row.
1: That audio you just heard is Dave McComb, introducing wide-open road to the crowd at Subiaco Oval, in their hometown of Perth, at one of the Australian-made concerts which toured the Australian capitals over a month in late 86 and early 87. We'll look at how the Triffids got onto this huge commercial behemoth later on in the episode. But as self-deprecating as Dave seemed with that intro, he's right about it being the Triffids' biggest hit, to that point at least. It was released as a single in February 1986, a 7-inch version with two tracks, and a 12-inch version with four tracks, and while it only made it to number 64 on the Australian Singles Chart, it did manage to climb to number 26 on the UK Singles Chart, with its cinematic beauty and the way it evoked bright light and wide-open spaces, seeming to resonate in the then dark and dingy London as well as the rest of England. But despite not ever seeing the charts alight, wide-open road has become an Australian classic, and it's remained their most beloved song, almost a signature track of sorts. I saw Steve Kilby from the church sing it with the surviving Triffords when they were inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame in Melbourne in 2008. In 2001, APRA, the Australasian Performing Rights Association, as part of its 75th anniversary celebrations, named Wide Open Road as one of the top 30 Australian songs of all time. In 1998, Paul Kelly and the Saints' Chris Bailey performed it live at the Mushroom 25th Anniversary Concert at the MCG at Paul Kelly's request to ensure one of his favourite songwriters was represented on the occasion. In 2010, it lent its name to the Triffids compilation, Wide Open Road, The Best of the Triffids. It's been covered by a heap of artists, naturally all Australian, including The Church, The Panics, The Temper Trap and Jimmy Little, but it was covered first, and most often, by one of my all-time favourite bands, Weddings, Parties, Anything, and it's through the gateway of that latter band that I first discovered Wide Open Road, and in turn the Triffords.
3: Well the drums rolled off in my forehead And the drums went off in my chest Remember carrying the baby just for you Crying in the wilderness I lost track of my friends Lost my kin I crossed him off my list And I drove out over the flatlands Hunting down you and him Well the sky was big and empty My chest filled to explode I'm yell yeah, my inside out of the sun at the wide open road. It's a wide open road. It's a wide open
2: road.
1: That's the Weddows covering Wide Open Road from their 1999 double live album, They Were Better Live, but the song first started appearing in their live set in the very late 80s, only a few years after Born Sandy Devotional came out. Almost immediately it became a live favourite, bolstered by the huge rousing sing-alongs the wedding's crowds were renowned for, and it wasn't long before I'd tracked down Born Sandy Devotional, Then In The Pines, and before long all of the Triffords albums, I was quickly hooked. I'd known about them before then, but I'd been going to see bands in Melbourne, where I grew up, since I was about 15 in the mid-80s, the good old days before Photo ID, and you tended to fall in love with the bands you saw all the time. So acts like the Weddows, the Johnnies, and Painters and Dockers were my jam around the time Born Sandy Devotional came out. But the Triffords, as we've heard, were based in the UK, so Melbourne gigs were few and far between. Luckily, these things aren't a race, and I found the Triffids in the end, thanks to Weddings Parties Anything. That band singer and songwriter Mick Thomas was kind enough to have a yarn about his journey to covering Wide Open Road, and he starts by recounting how he first stumbled upon the Triffids himself via one of their early singles.
3: I think that it was the Spanish Blue was the first thing I heard. I, I think it was on Rock Around the World, something like that, Um. It was it was certainly on, on television. It was the first time I heard them, um, and I was kind of immediately struck by uh, I, I don't know um, the fact that they were a band that kind of seemed to be really willing to take sort of sharp diversions, you know, I, sort of you know I probably you know and in especially in those days when your awareness of a new act was probably tempered a lot by um the music press which existed you know, which was was much more pronounced than it is these days so yeah I mean the physical music press so uh, you know whether it was Duke or Ram or um there was a, a paper called Vox at one stage um so I probably became aware of them via that but I certainly have a strong memory of seeing that song. Uh, was it called, Was it Spanish Blue? Was yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, on you know one of those. I think I'm pretty sure it was Rock Around the World with Baja Bukowski, um, and yeah, yeah. Just 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 sort of liking the fact that they were a band that seemed to yeah, s- seemed to sort of be prepared just to take take a a, a, a sort of diversion, you know, and. I think pretty soon after the first time I saw them, I was uh, there was a band of, of I can't even remember what they were called, you know, um, friends, and they were. I used to mix them occasionally, you know, it, you know, like I mean, I'm not much of a live sound mixer, you know, but I sort of went and I was mixing this band, and they opened for the Triffids at the. Uh, I I think by this stage it wasn't even. I don't know, I, you know. Seaview Ballroom or one of those, whatever whatever that, that place was called at that time. And yeah, you know, there was not many people there. I can remember that. So they opened for the Triffids and I just remember hanging around to watch them. And, uh, you know, I mean, that was like the, the Triffids would, would come to town in those days. And they, they were, I think they'd gone through their period of living in Melbourne by that stage. And this is just, they were just visiting when they came to town, but they were certainly not a big band, you know. Like, I I don't know if they ever got big crowds in Melbourne. Really, you know, like I, I think it's, it's they're an interesting phenomenon to to look at because I'm I'm not sure you know where the Triffids ever drew big crowds in Australia. You know, I sort of have funny recollections of them. I I think they <laughs> I'm not sure what Michael Jackson's song or album was out at that time, but I remember they had like a a picture of Michael Jackson on on the yeah, that they just pinned to the curtain it was like you know from so you know it was they were kind of ironic and you know I sort of just got the feeling they were you know, not that they didn't care but that they were kind of putting up a bit of a wall between themselves and um what popular success might be defined as you know um,
1: yeah, a lot of bands do that i guess
3: yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, shit, heaps of bands do that. It was like, the, oh, we don't care. Yeah, we're just going to be a bit ironic here. And, but they were still when they kind of hit. I mean, I, I can still remember that gig. And that was still, when they hit their straps, they were really good, and it was really formidable and really sort of special. And you know, I, I was already kind of quite enthralled by them. But yeah, they were they were, they were putting up very much a wall of like nonchalance, you know, at the time.
1: Born Sandy Devotional's release in 1986 coincided with Weddings, Parties, Anything's formative years. At that stage, they'd just released an EP and a single, their debut album, Scorn of the Women, arriving in 1987. But Born Sandy soon connected hard with the band as they began developing their own fan bases all around Australia, but noticeably over in Perth, where they were quickly pulling big crowds.
3: I know that Born Sandy devotional had a massive effect on on the weddings um just the scope of it you know and I, I mean I really it's just, it's a great record from start to finish but I think really the first couple of tracks as openers is just it's so, such a fucking massive statement and the paradox of the whole thing about me even talking about the Triffids, is that the wedding's got all this success in Perth. And so we were going to Perth really regularly and we really kind of hit it over there. And I don't reckon they had that success in Perth. You know, I reckon I reckon any respect and love of the Triffids sort of came later. And everything I've read about them sort of seems to reinforce that idea that, you know, that, that they had to keep relocating because they, they kind of really didn't know where they... Where they fitted in, mm, um, totally. Yeah, that was it. Was you know I I know we'd we'd whenever we went south in Western Australia, we'd always sort of play try and play that record in the van as we sort of drove down past Mandurah and just just try trying to sort of drive the van almost through the album cover, <laughs> you know, because just that that picture is. Um, yeah, it's pretty special, and we're kind of really aware of it. I mean, it was was a really big thing for us, that record.
1: And it was during one of those trips to Perth that they were asked to contribute a cover to a community radio compilation, the excellent 3RRR used and recovered by Covers Collection, which eventually came out in 1990. And being over West, it seemed entirely appropriate to cover a Triffid song, and what better Triffid song than Wide Open Road? As Mick explains, in the pre internet days, he didn't have access to the song's lyrics and he made a couple of little mistakes in the verses. He still sings that slightly altered version to this day, but that's more than fine in his books.
3: 3 rr were doing a, I think they had a record called Used and Recovered by, mm-hmm. you know, which is, seems to be a format that, you know, is that um, they didn't invent it, but you know that the idea of just getting a whole bunch of people to do well-known covers and you know w- whether it was kind of a, a jingoistic thing or whatever that w- we kind of had this idea about covering Australian bands. you know so you know early on we had a Tex Morton song in the in the repertoire and and you know, all w- we do like, early on you know rain tumbles down in july or dingos way out west and i guess that was our sort of seeking this identity as an australian band you know and that maybe there was there was a kind of feeling that that a lot of this stuff had been neglected um so when triple r had um this idea to this album used and recovered by it the sort of deadline came up for that and we were actually in western australia and uh you know, I forget, it was just a little studio we went into to record it and um, we just said, yeah, look, we, we can do this song. And, and, and you know, I, I mean, I've, I've since had sort of mixed feelings about, you know, the, the attitude that I always took to those cover versions was like, just play them as you remember them. because And I, that was very much the, the sort of folk music tradition for me, you know, that... that you didn't have to get them perfect that it was almost better if you remember them differently you know and and uh so therefore you know getting some of the lyrics wrong was kind of something that i kind of almost wore as a badge of honor and these days you know i, I don't know I'm, I'm less you know enamored of that sort of thing. and i guess it's i guess it's because the internet a provides you with a way to access the correct versions of anything but B can also provide you with a, an incorrect version of anything too because it's, it's such a, you know, you're still dependent on other. So what I, what I think I'm getting at is if I'm going to make a mistake, I'd rather it be my own than some idiot on a lyric website, you know. So these days I tend to just go and try and find the right the source. And get it right, but <laughs> and at that time I was like, "Oh no, 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 I just, I, I know how this song goes, and we just went in and played it. And oh, look, I, I'm and I'm really proud of the fact that we did that, that really early on, that we grabbed that song, and no one else thought to do that at that stage, you know. And and I spoke to Dave McComb and uh, he was absolutely rapt, you know, and he told me this funny story of going past a pub in Perth and it being on the jukebox because we, we put it on a B-side of something and um, he said going past the pub and people were singing it in the pub and him sort of going in and just sitting in and going, my God, the, the Triffids never got that in Perth, that that song sort of, you know, got a status via as a weddings party's anything song that it never got as a Triffids song.
1: Wide Open Road really did connect with the Weds fan base, staying in their set list all through their storied career. They recorded a couple of different versions of it over the journey, and that first one even scored a slot on their own best of, Trophy Night, in 1998. He and the band did some amazing covers over the years, he's got a huge knack of making songs his own, but none stuck around like this, and not even Mick Shaw sure, really why Wide Open Road has stayed with him all this time
3: maybe in some ways it does encapsulate what's really great about mccomb's writing you know and that it's just it's sort of multi-layered it has all you know that you can sort of take it on, on on one level or another level you know and like it just has this kind of repeated chorus it just goes and goes and goes and it's so simple you know um so, yeah, I, I sort of read an article where someone talks about it in relation to the weddings crowd and what they found in it and that, that you know, paradoxically, you know, that that it probably suited the sort of people that followed the weddings and that they were a bit sort of more rough and ready than, say, a Trifford's crowd who were very, you know, maybe inner city and focused on the inner city, but that... You know the, the crowd that followed the weddings were kind of rough heads out in their cars, fucking driving about, and and you, you know feeling that that feeling of like what whatever you say it's a wide open road. Well, you know, did, to what extent people sort of see that as a as an unrequited love song, or as just a song about yearning? You know, like this general yearning, which is much more. A much more hard harder to define kind of emotion, but no less worthy, and no less um, uh, what's the word? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no less worthy or effective, you know, or, or something that might you know tug at your heartstrings. But it's just it's a wide open road. It's a wide open road, Um and you go well, yeah. You know, it's, it's just people sort of seeking you know like it's it's a kind of a very general emotion but it's, it's kind of there and you know I, I yeah i i mean it would take me you know a year to f- sort of find the quote or the the reference to it in in regards to the weddings but it, but yeah I, I can still remember the article when when someone sort of said well uh, uh, the song just really struck a chord with the wedding's crowd, you know, like really, really quickly. And, uh, and I guess, you know, if, if you look at the maybe the people that followed us, especially in Western Australia, they were people hopping in their cars and driving fucking <laughs> long distances, you know, to see us play or to do whatever, you know. Even in that statement that Macomb made to me about hearing, hearing Wide Open Road sung in pubs by, you know, like basically fucking yobbos in Perth, um, <laughs> there was sort of something troubled in that statement, you know. And I and I think at the time he was playing with the Black Eyed Susans. I think that was the early one of the early incarnations of that band. And um, there were sort of bands that were all you know, they always felt at odds. I mean probably even more so with the Black Eyed Susans. Really at odds with cultural life in Perth, you know, and um Whereas the, the weddings kind of somehow just just went straight in there and you could, you know, I mean, I'm sure someone who was a detractor who was less than kind would go, because oh, you know, maybe you were yobos yourselves and you were quite quite suburban. But I don't know, it's, it's, there was something in the weddings that seemed to be able to transcend that a bit, you know, and it was, you know, I, I mean, I think it was maybe the legacy of Dave Warner and people like that who who could be quite who could have quite a strong suburban appeal and appeal to middle Australia while still having, you know, making intelligent music, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And that was kind of the brief for the weddings from the start. But that we really did, we were really seeking acceptance, you know, in the Australian, you know, working class, middle class people. But somehow, you know, the Triffids sort of, and stroke Black Eyed Seasons seem to butt up against that, you know? And a lot of the stuff that you, you still read, you know, in retrospect, they were always kind of seem to be butting up against, you know, what Perth was. And yeah, because it's sort of a tough place, Perth. It's, it's whatever problems you, you can sort of talk about with, you know, the Australian cultural life and cultural cringe is, is, you know, ramped up over there.
1: All right, let's take a closer look at the song itself. The main thing that stands out musically about Wide Open Road is its use of a drum machine, making it something of an outlier on Born Sandy Devotional. Drum machines were all a rage in the 80s, but Dave didn't like trends, plus the Triffids already had an awesome drummer in Elsie but as Rob explains, in this instance, Dave was really inspired by late '70s, early '80s New York City synth punk pioneers Suicide, which, once you think about it, makes total sense.
4: He loved the group dynamic where, and he he wanted more collaboration, but and and he would, you know, give vocal duties to other members of the band where where possible. Um, so, although he was yeah very detailed in his ideas, and he very so you know wrote so much before it finally came to the, the final version or whatever he uh, he really um, valued the the individual uh, creativity of each band member and what they could uh, yeah and and not to overthink things you know I, I personally I would often just come up with a you know, some musical thing and say, great, that's it, you know, rather, don't overthink it, you know, you've come up with it, you know, develop that one rather than go, no, I, you know, I'd second guess you or whatever. Nevertheless, which is often the case, he had, sometimes had very clear idea of, of how every part should go. Um, I think, think Wide Open Road is probably a good example of that, where he said, your part goes like this. And, and the only thing we deliberated over was the, the rhythm. But then once he realised he wanted to uh, rip off suicide or, or, or refer to suicide's, uh, you know, drum machine rhythm, once we had that, you know, then and everything else he pretty much uh, had a clear idea of. And then there are other songs where he comes in and, and goes, well, the song goes like this, but I've got no idea you know, so let's just sort of run through it. And and sometimes we do really radically different versions of a song, you know, different instrumentation and just to try and see where it could go. Um, So he was, it was great to work with like that. There was no, um, you know, suppression of your individuality, but yet at the same time you had, Um, just a very creative artist to work with.
1: Engineer Nick Mainsbridge explains that David flirted with drum machines in the past, but throws in the fact that the organ sound on Wide Open Road was pitched to sound like their minivan Happy Wheels crossing the
2: Nullarbor back in the day. We'd used drum machines for a long time, uh, as click tracks mostly, and and things, but uh, it's not so much the drum machine that makes it timeless or the... In my, to my mind, or the instrumentation, it, it's, um, the groove is fantastic uh, with that song in particular. And once again, that's Martin. And, um, and of course, Dave counting it in. So, you know, it starts with an organ and the bass and drum machine groove. Do you know what that organ is? It's the, it's the van, the minivan they drove across the Nullaborn. That's If you drive down the 90 miles straight, that it, it does your head in, right, that you're at the same pitch for hours and hours on end. And um, I think there was quite a big effort to get the overtone of the organ exactly the same as the minivan. But, you know, the, the truth of that song is um, I think there's truth in the lyrics and I think there's... Um, a really accurate vision from Dave as to what that song was and he's pulled it off and whether it has drum machines or, in it or not is kind of irrelevant. I think the, the song is bigger than what the instrumentation was. It's just the work of a, a wonderful writer that, that successfully
1: got recorded. Which brings us to Wide Open Road's lyrics. Here's how Dave McComb described the song to Duke Magazine back in May 1990 when asked to comment on a heap of different Trifford songs. Like the rest of the bourne Sandy devotional album, it seemed to naturally evoke a particular landscape, namely the stretch of highway between Kygoona and Norseman where the Triffid's high ace monotonously came to grief with kangaroos. But note he says it evokes that landscape. It's not actually about that landscape. All roads per se or Australia itself. In 1986, he told Triple J during an interview, I never considered myself to be particularly Australian at all. I just come from this bland suburb in Perth. The desolate landscape was just what Dave knew from those long drives east from Perth in the Triffid's early days, and to him it was the perfect setting for his tales of heartbreak and emotional desolation, feeling broken and alone, no doubt reminding him of that wide open road is graham
5: i think the the decisions that 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 basic decision that he had made that this was supposed to be a thematic record and uh, and also you know some of it might be to do with recording it um, in isolation in london but i don't really think you know people often say that that um, pining for Australia was the reason for. But Australia is a feature of the songs, but it, they're not Australian songs. They could be, he could have, he, Dave is a writer who mentions landscape, but he mentions it as part of an emotional landscape, not, you know, what a pretty beach this is, <laughs> that um, this, this, um, Suicide victim is has found himself washed up on. <laughs>
1: it's like he, he knows the outback really well, so he uses that scale almost to um, <clears throat> write about how he's alone and forsaken.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's as I said, the the emotional landscape is more important than the than the literal um, landscape, and that's something that. You'll find in the best writers. Um, of course, they have to write about. Um, if if a song is set, a song or a book is set in Australia, then you, yeah, the Australian landscape is part of it. But it's not the most important part, mm-hmm. and it could be another landscape. But um, but the the cinematic quality. Um, I think um, that. Another th- um, guideline for for Dave was he didn't want the Triffords to sound like any other band. He didn't want us to use, you know, um, fashionable sounds at all. He didn't want us to sound, you know, even vaguely like any other band. And he wanted, he just wanted us to play what suited the song and he really did want to um to build up uh and a landscape for the songs a setting for the songs a musical setting that didn't rely on cliches you know i like he he had a, a real real hatred of any kind of cliche and he didn't like genre music like blues music wasn't really on his, on his map, but people like uh, Lightning Hopkins maybe might be because it sort of transcend the genre. And that's, he didn't want it to be, the Triffids to be any genre at all. And I think it kind of worked. I mean, you, you can't really, it, there's only, only maybe um, Life of Crime, it's probably the only song on there where you could say, "Oh, it's a bit bluesy," but but it's not really blues. He loved the mystery in his songs, didn't he? Like leaving Absolutely. that
1: bit of ambiguity.
5: Absolutely. He 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 really thought that um, music wasn't a hundred percent worthy if there was no mystery. That's why he wasn't he wasn't a big fan of the Kinks because he thought. It was too straightforward. Even though he liked the tunes and whatever, he just he thought that was too straightforward. But, but interestingly enough, he did. He liked country music for the storytelling side of things, um, and you know, often in country music, there's not a lot of mystery. But I guess that if you've got a when you've got a writer like Graham Parsons, who he really did like. Um, there is a lot of mystery in Graham Parsons' songs. Um, but yeah, it was very, it was important to him to not not be too clear about his intentions. Um, and for for the listener to to have to use to to involve themselves in, in the song. The main instance on
1: Born Sandy, where Dave's lyrics literally seem to tie back to a specific time or place in Australia, is at the start of Estuary Bed, Dave recalling a more idyllic time when he and Margaret were actually still together back in WA. The
5: children are back from the-
1: Butcher's book Save What You Can, The Day of the Triffids, referenced in the second episode, he recounts wide open road pouring out of Dave in a rush while he was stuck in Melbourne between the eighty-four and eighty-five UK trips, convinced that on the other side of the country the girl he loved was spending time with someone else. And not just some random. This was another singer from an Australian
5: band. One based in England, someone that he knew. The most autobiographical song on that on the record is probably the Seabirds. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know that that he was that he was ever um, lying next to a stranger with the rain hitting the the roof harder over their heads, but um, he probably wanted to and. Uh, he could. It, I think that's that song probably tells you more about about Dave's mood than any other. And White Up and Road as well, which is very very much an autobiographical song. Um, and you know that's that's the the song that. We weren't to know was was going to become an Australian classic, but but it's a it's I think it's a very misunderstood Australian classic because it's a song about about revenge really. It's about there it was a real situation where where um, Dave had lost a relationship and lost it to somebody else, and and he really did. Deep down inside, want to go and chase them down. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's not a not a driving song, really. <laughs> so, can I ask? it's sort
1: of insinuated in Bledon's book that was that about Grant McLennan and Margaret? Yeah, you can. It was. Hmm. Must have been difficult. It was, for him. In,
5: it was indeed, um, and um he even uh was brazen enough to to in, in the outro you know that that little round that we have that it's a go-between c kind of it's the sort of thing that grant would play it's like
1: I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty blown away by this. You knew the song was about betrayal, the lines, so how do you think it feels, sleeping by yourself, when the one you love, the one you love, is with someone else, makes that pretty obvious. Those are amongst my favourite lyrics from any song, not just the Triffids, just because of how succinct and yet personal and powerful and universal they seem. So to find that someone else's Grant McLennan is mind-blowing to me. And that coder at the end of the song is kind of aping his guitar style like some sort of passive-aggressive clue. That just makes the following passage from Bleddon's book even more stone cold. The scene takes place in London, late 85, when they've just got the finished tapes of Born Sandy devotional back and Dave invited Grant over to hear his new opus over dinner. Dave invites Grant round for a curry on Sunday evening. He simmers the meat all afternoon, gentling it tender, feeding it chilly and heat. Grant arrives with a bottle of gin. The gin begins its long downhill journey and the tape is soon on the deck. Grant is as effusive as ever and painstakingly appreciative. He sees at once that Dave's taken a giant leap, both as a writer and recording artist, and says so again and again. He hears the fierceness of Dave's ambition, the energy of his invention and the depth of his investment. He's impressed by Dave's wild grasp of drama and scale. Hard to be anything less. Dave's up the ante. He knows it. He watches and waits. He sees the penny drop. Grant flinches as Wide Open Road fades. He stares wildly an instant and grins. It's a shit-eating grin, no question. Can we hear that one again, he asks? We can go back to it, Dave says. I want you to hear the whole thing. Brutal. Two amazing Australians gone too soon, but owe to be a fly on the wall for the rest of that evening. But anyway, that's wide open road. Pretty much an exercise in Australian gothic. Jack Kerouac makes the open road seem liberating. On Born Sandy devotional, Dave McCone makes it seem vaguely terrifying. Graham Lee explains that this emotional turmoil in the singer's life
5: was sadly par for the course around this time. That was Dave's life for the next um, next five years until he settled in Melbourne. Um, in the very early nineties, um, he was just constantly in turmoil and. Um, and it was largely due to, to a situation that he couldn't remedy because he had to be, he had to be Dave from home, the songwriter. This involved him being away from from home and involved him being on the road. Uh, for years at a time uh, involved it also involved him um, not being completely available to to any partner that he may have had because he was Dave McComb, the writer rather and, and I think Dave McComb, the writer took precedence over Dave McComb, the lover it's a catch-22 isn't it or a... yeah, very much very much so Um and and probably to the point where it wouldn't matter if if he had Zoom available or whatever, it'd probably still happen. Dave's good friend and manager, Sally Collins,
1: also noticed these failings in his relationships starting to permeate the lyrical themes of Born Sandy devotional.
0: That became increasingly um, evident um, because, you know, again as i've said before in his relationships didn't travel well you know it's hard that tyranny of distance you know the you know the um you know the most beautiful song um you know tender is the night you know that lyric of you know where you know where you are it's just getting light you know and you it's hard you know we didn't have computers in those days we didn't have email or social media or anything so it was letter writing or, or when the money was good phone calls <laughs> but you were ringing and you're talking to people at the opposite side of the world they're getting up you're pissed you know and you're about to getting to bed you know so it's hard to get on a, a good footing and it's hard it was very hard to maintain those relationships and as much as possible you know when his partners when any of the band's partners were in the UK I would try and involve them in the tours they were always welcome partners were always welcome on tours you know if they could come but you know Dave had some um, very you know uh, lovely intelligent women partners who had their own lives thank you very much and they were doing their own thing you know they didn't necessarily want to be following him they wanted to be in the relationship but they're not you know they were getting on with their own lives as well which of course he admired but it was heartbreaking for him too
1: yeah it must have been yeah.
0: so hard, so hard. Mm. um and he did get it was lonely it was lonely you know for for him and he you know he was lucky because he had great friends, you know, Bledon and Jude Butcher, who you would know, um, you know, they liked the family to him. You know, he had really, the band were his friends on the road, but he had family in terms of deep friendships, um, um, particularly with Bledon and Jude when we were in the UK and, you know, other friends when he was back in Australia.
1: A lot of people think on the surface that Born sandy is all about Australia because the outback and the landscape and the and the space and everything's so prominent in it but that's it 's not really about that per se is it that 's Dave using that as a sort
0: that's of a metaphor isn't there <laughs> the, um, yeah it, 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 it's, it is it's not about that that 's the setting for the drama mm. you know that the the landscape provides the 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 backdrop for the drama. Which is a, 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 a per- either his personal experience, or if he's writing, writing in the you know third person, somebody's experience, you know, of uh, love and death and separation and yeah, distance. So yeah, it's a good backdrop.
1: <laughs> Before we leave episode four and head to the finale. I'd just like to quickly discuss the Australian Made tour that we heard Dave speaking at from stage at the start of this episode, introducing Wide Open Road. Now, this travelling festival of sorts featured some pretty big 80s bands. We're talking In Excess, Divinals, Models, The Saints, I'm Talking, Metal Is Anything, Jimmy Barnes, all of whom had released hits in Australia, except the Triffords hence Dave's being so self-deprecating about their sole hit. But by all accounts, the Triffids' place on the bill was at the insistence of in-excess frontman Michael Hutchins, who was impressed by not just the Triffids' music, but the fact that they'd made such an impact in the UK and Europe where Australian bands traditionally struggled. Here's Sally Collins recalling how the Triffids ended up on Australian Made and how their inclusion put a few noses out of joint.
0: For me that was a really interesting experience because we were in the uk we had no plans to come home we thought we, we usually would come home for christmas and chris murphy started to ring me and he said i'm doing this big thing you know uh, i knew chris murphy in those days managers didn't talk to each other of course you know they but um i i knew chris's in manager and in excess were with the same booking agency in the uk as we were and had caused an agent to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so his reputation was, you know, pretty fierce. And, I, you know, and so this guy starts ringing me and saying, look, we want you to come back and to do this Australian Tour. And none of us were really keen to tell the truth. And then I got to thinking, well, we are going to go home for Christmas. Let's just do it anyway. You know that he told me. You know he told me who was on it. He he wouldn't actually take no for an answer, and I'll get, tell you why in a sec. But the um uh so yeah so we started to you know think about it. We we came back and we did it, and it was a, um, a very strange thing for us because some of the other artists um, didn't think we should be there and uh, um, they there was a um, and some of the uh, the the billing was meant to go based on your international popularity so we weren't to be the first band (laughs) and some of the artists didn't think that was you know um, right either Or, or their managers not not the musicians not the bands Anyway so there was a in the very first thing there was a um, a manager's meeting you know I didn't give a uh, having made the decision for us to be there we were just going to go along and do it you know that was the way we worked but um you know I didn't think of that I was going to be fighting for our position on the bill I knew we were more popular in Europe than maybe three of those are the other people on the act, uh, on the bill. But anyway, uh, you know, Chris Murphy said he, he, there was, uh, there was a manager's meeting and he hit the roof and he said, he, you know, he shouted at these other managers and he said, you know, to pull their heads in and, you know, do you know what they've done? Do you know, you know, how popular they are? Do you know where they've been? Do you have any idea what this, you know, they will be where they should be, at which point I just said, well, look, it's okay, don't worry, you know. And then um, Jeremy Fabini um, stepped in. He said, we, we don't need to have any hassle with any of this because um, what Chris is saying is true, but I will volunteer that mentals will go on first at every show and warm the audience up, and which is what they did. It was so kind of him. And, um, yeah, but, you know, we weren't treated fabulously there you know the, the i think the only um the mentals we knew because they'd been to our houses in london when they had, had lived up was uh, um, number one in america uh, in the uk i should say and um uh, their tour manager and and I were friends and jeremy and fabini and i were some colleagues in a way because he took the machinations after i finished working with them and um, anyway, we did have fun, but it was quite strange. Quite strange, yeah. Different, the from- the, road crew, the big Australian Jan's road crew, you know, treated us because we, we did weren't travelling with any crew. They treated us really badly, as well. And funnily enough. Um, what the, the person who treated who remain will remain nameless became a very dear friend of mine later on <laughs> as we worked together in the corporate world and uh, you know and he just said yeah I was an asshole yeah <laughs> anyway
1: did the bank go uh, over okay to the crowds and everything
0: yes um. Not as, you know, not in the same ways as the Divinals or In Excess or, you know, Jimmy Barnes or, you know, but absolutely, yeah. And by that stage, you know, everybody knew Wide Open Road anyhow. But, uh, you know, Dave, you know, did he sing, well, we haven't had many hits here, you know, I think on the first show or it might have been the Sydney show or something, we haven't had any hits in Australia, but you might know this one, you know, (laughs) because it's been on Countdown. And you know that was it, it is right. That was pretty much wanted. Had been on. We'd done you know Andrew Denton shows and things like that. You know ABC shows and, um, and and Countdown once for that song.
1: From the band's perspective, Graham says they had slight initial misgivings about the Australian made tour as well, but ended up embracing the opportunity.
5: It was an experience. Um, I remember we were sitting around in London. And I can remember that I had I had this girlfriend in Sweden, and we were planning to spend Christmas together. Um, and then we had this band meeting, and this thing came up: Australian maid concert, and they said, you know, all that stuff that Michael Hutchins wants you. Um, And it'll be in front of huge crowds. And there was a big discussion about whether we should do it or not. And in the end, we kind of reluctantly agreed to do it. And I was devastated. because (laughs) I didn't didn't want to do it at all. But uh, but it turned out to be a very, uh, very, uh, I don't know whether I'd describe it as fun or not, but it was certainly an experience because we were flying around in a chartered jet and, and playing to the uninitiated largely, although there were always people down the front who who were there to see us. Uh, We got on really well with the other bands on the bill, and and we just got on and did it, you know. Um, It didn't have the desired effect of making the Triffids a a household name. Uh, In fact, I don't think it had much effect at all. (laughs) But... um, yeah. I've, yeah I've seen that documentary. it pops up on TV every so often. Uh, I'm surprised that we, we we actually we played pretty well, uh, even though there's only one song that you ever hear which is born, uh, which is uh, wide Open Road. Yeah. but um, I know that a lot that our whole set what would have been filmed, it'd be interesting to hear mm. to hear what it sounds like. So there's a fair bit of drinking going on. <laughs> that when Dave Intro's wide open, road, it feels it almost sounds
1: like he's being so self-deprecating like he didn't believe he should be there or something.
5: Uh he's no, he's he's yeah, he says, um, oh well this this song was played on countdown, so I suppose I guess that means something. <laughs> um <laughs> I, I think he was he was fairly cynical about the, about the whole exercise, and I don't. Uh, he he was kind of uh, I don't know. It's an interest. It's uh, an interesting sort of multi levelled um, situation in that Dave had played to bigger crowds in Europe at this stage. Like we played big festivals. Mm-hmm. We were. Um, we were kind of seasoned festival band and he, and he looked like it, you know, in that, in that clip, he's, he's commanding the stage. He's, he's got his fist in the air. He's got his, he's got his gold vest on, (laughs) his scarf, you know, (laughs) He's, he's prowling the stage. And, and I think that possibly surprised a few of the other bands that, that we were, um, that he was such a great front man, um, and but at the same, at the same time, he I'm sure, didn't believe that, this was really going to do us much good, and he knew that he was playing largely to people who couldn't give a shit. Um, there were some fans down the front, great, but um, but largely it just washed over the heads of. Of the people who were there and, um, and so he was He was giving his all But I think he kind of knew That it was pointless Obviously Dave was Really artistically
1: ambitious But when you, when you hear him talk About commercial success It only ever seemed to be in terms of making life Easier for the band and Practical things
5: Yeah, well that's all, all that it would have been Um. You know, I I don't think he needed um, he he didn't need um, commercial success to to validate his his work. He knew that what he was doing was good. He knew that what he was doing was world class. He knew that what what he was doing, you know, belonged up there with with um, Bob Dylan and um, and. Mick Jagger and you know he knew that he was good and he knew that his that his work was was good enough. Um, but uh yeah, commercial success would have been would have been nice because we would have been able to do a lot more. Um we, we would have been able to he would have been able to jump on a plane and fly back to Australia whenever he wanted. That sort of thing.
1: Even Mick Thomas can see that the Triffids' inclusion on Australian Made was a fitting reward for their sacrifice and dedication, even if they never made massive inroads in Australia during their tenure together. I
3: think that they had trouble fitting in as a band, you know. Like, uh, it, it would seem to me uh, that... You know, I mean, I know there's, there's all this kind of posthumous success, you know, that they've... Someone... I think, you know, there's a plaque in somewhere in London, but about where they recorded, you know, fucking Born Sandy, Devotional, and all this stuff about stuff they did in Europe. And I'm sure they played, look, I'm sure they played to the big crowds somewhere along the way. But I, I think success was kind of very um, elusive for them, you know, in, in, in some regards, certainly in the early stages. I know that there were always people who seemed to support them you know there's even that great thing when they did that australian made tour mm. and I, I remember sort of reading this quote from Macomb. i didn't go to that tour but him saying uh, that it was just a totally benevolent action getting the triffids on that tour that, that they didn't really contribute anything to the bill that it was just someone thought they should be there and and i reckon I reckon they they had a fair bit of that you know for, for and for so I I guess that's the other side the flip side of them not being able to fit in anywhere they you know probably always found people who kind of liked them and who could sort of see this virtue in what they did but you know I I don't know why or, or how it never it never hit it you know for them
1: we'll leave episode 4 there Please join us for the final instalment where we look at Born Sandy Devotional's eventual release, how it was received both here and overseas and how its legacy has grown and reverberated over the ensuing years. Obviously, we're going to end this episode with the Triffid's classic recording of Wide Open Road, the song which will always be one of my favourites but which I may never be able to listen to the same way again with all this new knowledge. Here it is.
2: It's wild. When our loves, it's, wild.
1: it's wild. What a song. Thanks for making it this far. Just the one episode to go. Hope to catch you there.
3: Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Trewiek and Andrew Mutt. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dullabar.